This is The Cable. Big bid on 10-year treasuries over the last week. Tech story is front and centre. A lot of people are saying, no, thank you, step back. You're saying, get in, why? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. The dollar a little bit stronger today. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable. An historic moment from which there can be no turning back. With Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good afternoon, good afternoon to the City of London. You are listening to The Cable Live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. This is Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. As we close out the session in London and close out the week, the FTSE down by 0.58%. In the United States, the Teflon S&P 500 still doing okay. Up on the week, up on the day by 0.09%, Guy. Absolutely. Um... I, this 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 market is built on on hope, isn't it? It's just this kind of expectation, John, that if coronavirus gets out of control, there is going to be massive, massive central bank stimulus, and everybody's cool with that. It's, it's the policymakers' market, amazing. isn't it? Last Sorry? year, it's the policymakers' market. Last yeah. year, that's all it was. This year, I thought it was a show me the money year, show me the data. Yep. Show me the earnings, and then it's quickly become about policy all over again. We talked about this a little bit earlier in the week. I think there's one of those things that you can just get your hands around a little bit more easier, and that's policy and stimulus. And then there's a th- another thing that's really hard to get your hands around, and that's things like second-round effects, supply chain disruption, a coronavirus. So we're putting all of that to one side and just focusing on the policy. The policymaker has your back, Guy. Yeah. Uh, and it's absolutely amazing. I was talking to somebody at UBS earlier uh, in the credit space. I, I, he, he just said it's unbelievable. I, he just, he, he genuinely kind of, uh, this is, this is not what anybody was expecting. The fund flows, the inflows, absolutely epic at the start of this year, and, and nobody, nobody thought that that was going to be the case. But you can't fight it, and you can't get out of the way of it. You probably don't want to carry positions this weekend uh, because you don't know what's going to happen. But nevertheless, that's just got to be at the margin, hasn't it? Got to be. Charlie Pellet's in the room. Turned up a little bit ah. late, Charlie. I'm here Classic. on time. No, I'm never. Late. I'm always on time. If you're fashionably, not in the studio, fashionably if you're late, Pellet. In the studio when the show music starts, you are late. Well, there you go. Called out for that, but you know what? Here, better than ever, and I've got a lot going on well, in the tell news us world all about today. It. All right, so let us begin with coronavirus and consumers, specifically Harrods, a big tourist attraction for Chinese shoppers. It has prohibited staff from wearing masks when dealing with customers because it may fan unfounded concern about coronavirus. The luxury department store says it is not allowing face masks on shop floors due to, quote, the risk of spreading further anxiety among customers and staff. Well, China has been answering some of the questions about a spike in coronavirus cases earlier this week, confirming that it was a one-off increase. In the meantime, the American Health and Human Services Secretary says American experts are waiting for final clearance to travel to China and help fight the outbreak. And according to a report from Beijing Daily, health authorities in China are telling people returning to Beijing to stay home for two weeks for observation. Royal Bank of Scotland's new boss, Alison Rose, is abandoning the bank's three-century-old name and slashing its markets business as the state-controlled lender steps away from its tumultuous past. RBS will be renamed Nat West Group later this year, adopting the brand of the sprawling English branch network it acquired. In a merger that reshaped UK banking 
two decades ago. That is the latest from the news desk on time on a Friday. Here he is, Jonathan Farrell. Charlie Pellet. Thank you, My Charlie. Pleasure. You've got to get your thoughts on the viral video of the moment in the United States, and it's a lady reclining her seat on a plane and a gentleman punching it in the back periodically because he's unhappy. Sad. We're grown-ups, number one. Number two, I, I, you know, it, it's a complicated topic because when I sit in an airplane seat, if they didn't want it to recline, they wouldn't make it recline. I feel no problem whatsoever leaning back in a seat. That said... I'm a considerate guy. If I look behind me and I see a guy like Vince Signorella sitting there, (laughs) knowing that he's going to be even more cramped, I'm probably not going to put my seat back. So here's my take on this, because basically the the distance between my my kind of back of my hip and my knee is usually the amount of distance there is between the chair and the seat in front of you. <laughs> if the if the person in front reclines their seat, basically every time I move, I'm going to be moving that seat in a fairly a, a sort of fairly big way. What do you do at that point? Well, you can't move. You see, your feet don't. Your legs don't fit. How well, would you there, take that one, Charlie? Well, there you go. But part of the issue is, if the seat wasn't meant to recline, it would not recline. The airplane manufacturer, the airlines, would make seating that wouldn't recline. I, I have no problem reclining whatsoever. But again, I would consider myself to be a considerate recliner. I always you feel th- guilty if I do it. There's a lot of rules that I didn't know. Apparently, if you're in the aisle seat. You have rights over whether the window is up or down. You ever heard that one? Eh, yes and no. I've, Again, nev- I've never heard of that one before. Why uh, is that a thing? Uh, well, uh, I don't know if you guys you ever heard of that. No, Vince? I haven't. Actually. If you're in the no, aisle seat, you decide whether the window is up or down. Is that an you American can, thing? Yeah. Why? Why wouldn't that make totally sense? Totally never heard of that. Why does that make sense? Why wouldn't it? Doesn't it make sense. sense. Well, if you're in it the does. window seat, isn't that your right to decide uh, whether uh, the window is up or down? You're miles away from the seat. You can. On the on the seat thing, you can buy devices though that you can stick into the seat to stop it reclining. This has been a thing for a while. Yeah, the, uh, so the I think if everybody would just remember that, like the back of your seat is the front of the guys behind yeah. you, and that you kind of share that space, and you don't really have to take it all. I'm very considerate. So am I. Yeah, I, I'm a pretty I, big person. I quite if, often you know. feel bad about putting mine back. Um, the better half likes the aisle seat. I also like the aisle seat. And guess what? So I end up in the middle seat, oh, as you terrible. might expect. Oh, no, yeah, you know, terrible. see, that's so, what you do wrong. See, what I do is because you my, take the other aisle seat. And I, yeah, across from each other. See, and the, the other thing that you guys, do you guys ever use SeatGuru.com? Yeah, guy, yeah. guy, you ever use yeah. that? I mean, absolutely yeah. wonderful, especially if you're flying on a plane like a 777 where it's got, uh, you know, obviously a row of three. But once in a while, there are seats that are only two together. So what you can do is you can choose that seat so that you have no seat in front of you. And you've literally got leg room yeah. that goes from there to the cockpit. I mean, it's crazy. I, I fly unless I'm flying for work. I fly with my children. And that's a whole different experience. <laughs> that sounds tough. And, and Guy, for those of us Been sitting there. behind your kids or in front of your kids, it's a whole different experience as well. I get that. Charlie, did I, you look into that domestic South Korean flight? Very briefly, and I pulled up on Wikipedia a list of the most traveled flights. You know, what the, but this is the rabbit hole of the Internet. I was reading about this on the way in today. Then I said, why would anybody go to Jeju Island, which we were talking about yesterday in, in, in South Korea in the first place? It is gorgeous. I mean, I looked at the pictures of the beach. It's, it looks absolutely spectacular. Initially, I thought when when Guy and I were talking about the frequency of the planes flying in there, I naturally assumed that it was going to be small, narrow-body planes. No, there's huge jets that go in and out of there. Big, big, uh, uh, you know, uh, narrow-body 737s, which I put as, you know, huge compared to what I thought was going to be the smaller uh, narrow-body Embraer planes or the Canada Air Regional Jets. So, But no, there's big planes that fly in and out of there all the time. This was fun. 
I knew it would get you going. And and the other thing, can I just tell you one more viral sure. video? Oh, which gosh. which I'm it's sure. Friday. <laughs> okay, there are two idiots who are on the New York City subway system. Oh, they're in trouble. D- yeah. d- did you guys see this? Yes. Let me explain I for our listeners. I haven't these, seen the video. But okay, well, it's, it's, it, these guys were dressed in, in uh, full protective gear. They pretended that they were carrying a, uh, a container of coronavirus. It was a liquid that was really a Kool-Aid. And then they decided, you guys are laughing. They this isn't it. funny. Well, the guy in Moscow did that and got five years. Did he? Yes. Yeah, he got to prison for that. I mean, if that happened on my... Uh, They'd get beaten up. All right. Uh, just let me explain the, Not what happened. Not necessarily by me. I'm a nice guy. What happened? I haven't seen the video. Okay. Well, what happened was they had this bucket of Kool-Aid, or actually a, a, a container of uh, of Kool-Aid, and then they pretended they and it was labeled coronavirus, and then they took the <laughs> they took the top off, and then the top naturally, expectedly proceeded to spill onto the subway floor. So, uh, you know, you had uh, and naturally uh, people were just absolutely panicked with what was happening on the ground. So. Charlie Pellet. I, he turns up late, and then he takes up all the time. <laughs> there you go. I, and it's Valentine's Day. We didn't even talk about Valentine's Day. We'll save oh, that for the bottom of the yard. That, that's okay. Something to look forward to, folks. Stay Eight tuned. dollars a rose. Charlie, How much a rose? Eight dollars a rose <laughs> in Manhattan. Oh, yeah. Please retail. don't tell me you've been buying Outrageous. roses. Eight dollars. <laughs> Have you bought any? No, I was doing market research. <laughs> Charlie, <laughs> you mean you got there, thought you might, and then decided you wouldn't. <laughs> From London and New York, this... Here's the cable on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio in the London area. Vince Signorella is still with us. Let's get straight to the markets and talk a little bit about what's going on. Vince, the dollar is rallying. I have no clue what is going to happen with this coronavirus. Is the safe trade just to keep piling into it? It, it just appears to me. I mean, the, the alternatives are, are few. You said gold was trading higher this morning as well. Yen's doing a bit better. I mean, it, 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 to buck the trend at this point is, is kind of dangerous because the news, you know, this little news breaks. And, uh, you know, day traders and algos are programmed to take that virus news, generally speaking, and move markets on it. And that's exactly what's happening. Day to this week, not great. No. Job openings are a little bit concerning. I still think it's too early to start calling cracks in the labour market, given where claims are. Retail sales, though, for our listeners in the United Kingdom, you get two prints. You get the headline print, and then you get the control group print. And the control group informs, that's your input for GDP in America, and it strips out loads and loads of noisy things. And it's widely considered on Wall Street to give you a decent gauge of underlying demand. It came in at zero for January. You compare and contrast that with consumer sentiment, which is sky-high, multi-year highs. It's actually quite hard at the moment to get your hands around what's actually happening in the U.S. economy. And I'd say it has been difficult now for a number of months. What's your take on that, Vince? I, that is a very interesting point because, as you say, the sentiment indicators were strong. They were strong again this morning. Um, a, a nice pop in the UMIS sentiment numbers and uh, and. It was either the expectations of the current conditions. I think it was expectations um, were higher than estimate as well. Following the fourth quarter, there was some concern that we would be pulling growth from the first quarter into the fourth quarter when Trump delayed the taxes. The retail sales number indicates that that's potentially true. Now, that said, the market is pinning their hopes on the fact that the coronavirus will be short-lived. And the second quarter is going to be brilliant. And their markets are looking past the first quarter. 
I hear 30 bips and the ECB is becoming a serious uh, topic of conversation. Uh, a cut coming through. Euro's getting uh, pushed lower and lower and lower. Where do you see it bottoming out? I, I don't see the euro bottoming out for quite some time. I don't think the Europe and the European economy have anything going for it. I mean, it, it cuts in interest rates have proven to be ineffective for the ECB. Um, you, you have disastrous industrial production out of the major driver of the European economy, which is Germany. And as John pointed out last week, that doesn't even include the virus implications. That was December. The most recent data of Germany were terrible as well. And expectations going forward, once you even get past the virus situation, you have to deal with Huawei. How does Germany appease both the United States and China? If they don't take Huawei, China will put tariffs on their cars. If they do take it, U.S. will put tariffs on their cars. They they can't win. They are not going to win this trade. And no one believes Brexit trade negotiations are going to get done in 10 months. That's impossible. Euro dollar, though. Let's get to that call because – we can all sit here and agree the European economy is not in a terrific place. The data speaks for itself. Making a euro call is really tough. 103, the lows of a number of years ago, we got there with a big election win for the president, Donald Trump, dollar rips. 105, going back to 15, 16, big global growth scare driven by China. To get that initial downside, don't you think we need quite a big catalyst, Vince? Or do you think this is just a slow grind? I think it's a slow bleed, which is the most dangerous thing for traders, because when you get a big catalyst and it moves aggressively, people get out of positions because they see this this big drop coming, the the, the vol spike, and, and you just cut and run. But when the slow bleed comes, people have a tendency to go, let's I can improve my average here. Yes, I, the, the position the, the, still stinks, but we've your average gone. is better. We came into 2020 with a 112 handle. We've now got a 108 handle. Mm-hmm. I, to John's point, where does it? I, how low can this one go? Are there any obvious kind of numbers that spring to mind? There's um, some support at around 107.90, and that's about a two standard deviation move from the last 12 month closing price. I don't expect that to hold though for very long. Vincent Sigurana, credit catch up, these sir. Next up on the program, an interview with Guy Johnson. And Eurasia Group's Ian Bremer. Looking forward to that from the Munich Security Conference, I think. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. The annual Munich Security Conference is underway. Earlier today, Bonnie Quinn and I spoke to Eurasia Group President and Founder Ian Bremer, who's at the conference, uh, and he gave us his take on how the coronavirus is going to reshape the geopolitical landscape. Well, uh, the fact that China is such a large piece of the global economy and an even bigger piece of global growth uh, means that when China sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold, quite literally. And that is absolutely what's happening here. Uh, the, the ability of the Chinese government to have a very strong political hold on top of the virus, make sure that this does not embarrass or damage Xi Jinping domestically, means much more of a quarantine, harder line response, and also means much more business disruption. So I do think that the market level of concern about what's going to happen with travel long term, supply chain shipments, all of the rest, uh, I think have been underestimated for what we're likely to experience with China. I'm not worried about a pandemic that's going to kill hundreds of thousands of people, but I am quite concerned that this is going to have a bigger economic disruption this year, not just first quarter, than people think. Ian, the sense seems to be, though, that that there will be a huge policy response, that a lot of this can be compensated before by central bank action, be it in China or the United States or Europe. Do you believe that? 
Um, I mean, I certainly think the Chinese government is prepared to put a lot of cash in to ensure that the consumers uh, are not going to be any angrier than or fearful than they already are. Um, but that's very different from saying that the Chinese economy is going to be robust, that these companies are going to be working the way they need to. And also, let's keep in mind that, you know, interest rates are already comparatively low right now. It's not clear to me you're going to see coordinated action from the Americans, the Chinese, the Europeans, like you did coming out um, of the 2008 financial crisis. Um, our geopolitics are radically different right now. So, look, I think one of the biggest concerns is if the coronavirus gets to the point that it becomes a proximate drag on the American economy before the elections, and therefore Trump suddenly believes that he has a problem, right, with the Chinese, the geopolitical implications of that are very significant. Let's remember, Trump as president is the one guy who's saying Xi Jinping is great, I got that phase one trade deal done with him, and we're all engaged together. He's, he's going to get this fixed. Underneath Trump, you have people complaining about the Chinese on every front, and you feel that very much here in Munich uh, today, uh, whether it's on 5G or whether it's on Hong Kong, uh, whether it's on intellectual property, uh, whether it's on the South China Sea, you name it. Uh, there are Americans with a serious problem with China. If Trump suddenly changes his tune on China in a significant way, this is a very different environment for 2020. How much is there a split between what's being said publicly, what's posturing, though, Ian, and what's actually the goal here? It would seem to me that the goal of both the U.S. and China would be the same thing. Well, the goal of the United States and China uh, is the same thing in the sense that they both want the economy to grow as quickly as possible. What I'm saying is that if it suddenly looks like the goal is not going to be met and that suddenly the United States, uh, is, and Trump, Trump's goal is very much organized around November. It's around these elections and juicing the economy to make these elections look good. There were a lot of people that were very concerned that the trade war was going to grow and that the U.S. economy was going to dive on the back of that. They got a lot happier when you got that deal done. They got happier when Trump decided that he wasn't going to beat on the Europeans so much because the markets look better. And indeed, that's a big piece of why he's favored right now to win in November, though not by much. Um, if suddenly the U.S. economy looks worse because the coronavirus is not as manageable by Xi Jinping, again, I expect that Trump's ability to pivot. You saw how quickly Trump pivoted on North Korea. It was fire and fury. And then it was his best friend. Then they started doing summitry in Singapore and Vietnam. He wants to do another one, for Christ's sake. Um, let's watch how much that could flip in the other direction, a way that markets aren't going to like on China. Absolutely plausible if coronavirus becomes a significant knock-on economic impact for the United States in the run-up to elections. That's what you need to watch. So how much are you hearing CEOs do a double take right now? Because they were just given a gift, right? They finally got phase one, which meant that confidence could come back, they could maybe plan. And now suddenly the coronavirus fears are hitting and it's becoming increasingly difficult to plan again. What are the priority concerns for CEOs and executives that you're meeting around Munich, Ian? Well, they want to know how much of a shock this is going to be. I mean, you remember Secretary of Commerce Wilbur Ross um, actually said coronavirus could be good in the sense that it would make Americans, more Americans, bring jobs back to the United States. Not the most politic thing for him to say, let's be clear. Um, but there are a lot of CEOs that have had problems with their supply chain footprint. I mean, labor in China is a lot more expensive. They don't need as much of it. I mean, most services and manufacturing CEOs I know believe that they can make more money in the next next 10 years with less labor. And, uh, but they're not going to make a sudden change unless 
is a shock. A shock could be a recession. A shock could be bad coronavirus. And again, I, I think it's been very interesting to talk to the CEO specifically about that. Ian, how much does this undermine the, the regime in Beijing? Um, we have seen very little of Xi Jinping. Clearly, this is a major threat uh, to Beijing. What is your assessment of how big that threat is? Not much. Uh, I mean, no, there's no question that the fact that uh, you now have the heads of Wuhan uh, and Hubei uh, have been uh, removed and directly replaced by Xi Jinping, in one case by the former head of Shanghai, who was a strong and close confederate of Xi Jinping himself. He definitely has full ownership of this. But I think that as long as they are able to show that they now have the masks for people. They now have health infrastructure to respond. They take a hard line, but they actually get it done for the country. I don't think there's significant instability inside China. But the impact of ensuring that there's stability inside China is a willingness to take greater economic pain, both for China itself this year. They could see, you know, 5.5 percent growth or lower and what that means internationally. That is the trade that's going to be made. Let's be very clear. China is fundamentally a state capitalist economy. Their highest priority is political stability, not economic growth. The United States is driven by the private sector. The private sector cares an awful lot more about economic growth than political stability. That leads to a lot more polarization in the United States. A lot of people say it's rigged. A lot of people say you don't care about us. You know, we, we don't have an American dream anymore. In China, the Chinese dream is alive and well, but economic growth may be a different story. Ian Bremer, the founder of the Eurasia Group, joining Vonnie Quinn and myself a little earlier on. From the Munich Security Conference, we're going to have some great coverage out of that conference over the weekend. Matt Miller will bring you that come Monday morning. The S&P currently down, but only just. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. At the close today, the FTSE six-tenths of 1% lighter. The S&P 500 relatively unchanged on a week where it advances and does okay despite all the concerns worldwide around the coronavirus out of China. Let's get you some top stories, shall we? At side of the market action, here's your news flow. Here's Charlie Pellet. Right, hey, thank Charlie. you very much, uh, Jonathan Farrow. Here's what's going on on this Friday ahead of a long holiday weekend in the United States. A senior official says the U.S. will not change its policy on intelligence sharing with the U.K. over Britain's decision to allow Huawei technologies into next-generation broadband networks. President Trump tried to persuade the British government to exclude the Chinese company from the U.K.'s 5G networks, and was unhappy that that Boris Johnson defied him, in fact berating the Prime Minister during a heated phone call last week. Barclays has increased CEO Jess Staley's total pay by 76%. This after awards were paid out. The American CEO, who is being investigated by UK regulators over his ties to disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein, got a total of £5.9 million last year, according to the bank's annual report. Harrods, which is a big tourist attraction for Chinese shoppers has prohibited staff from wearing masks when dealing with customers because it may fan unfounded concern about coronavirus. The luxury department store says it is not allowing face masks on shop floors due to, quote, the risk of spreading further anxiety among customers and staff. Latest from the news desk, Jonathan Farrell, back to you now here in New York. Do we think that's a controversial decision? I'm sure it is for the employees. 
sense. I imagine yeah. some employees are quite anxious about the amount of tourist flow coming through the store. Yeah, but, you know, you, you got to ask yourself, would you want to be buying from somebody wearing a mask? I'd, I'd probably find it a little bit distracting. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, hey, I'd, what prob- it, I'd probably want a mask as well s- if they sep- had one on. Separate topic. What are you doing for Valentine's Day? No plans. What are you doing? None whatsoever. I guess we're both free tonight then. Where would you like to go? Uh, well, here's the thing. I'm going out to an Indian restaurant. going to be sitting so there by like, myself. But, <laughs> where's, but, <laughs> where's Mrs. Pellet? She's, she's away for Valentine's Day. You know, a, sorry, yeah, you're going to a restaurant on your own. Yeah, by myself. On you know? Valentine's Yeah, I'll be no. sharing a drink they call loneliness, but it's better than drinking no, alone. No, we, so. stay, we stay in on Valentine's night, <laughs> yeah. because as a couple, we've decided Emphasis it's a waste. Are we? We've decided it's a waste of money. Yeah, it's, well, just, unpl- it's just not a pleasant experience. I, I agree with you. I've, I have often compared Valentine's Day to either a performance review at work <laughs> or an earnings report where the whole idea is, did you meet expectations, did you exceed expectations, or, or did you fail to meet expectations? Have you ever worked at a restaurant on valentine's day no we had a story about it on the bloomberg yesterday. i have i didn't know someone had done a story on it i've yeah. worked yeah well what, what what's your takeaway it is insane it is so much hard work now that said our story the thrust of our story is that valentine's day i think ranked either number 49 or number 75 it, bottom line way 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 down on the list in terms of profitability and in terms of people coming out well that's just not true well take I, a look I, at the story it used to be one of our busiest weekends every yeah. year the busiest weekend probably not a surprise mother's day either both on saturday and on that's sunday there, in the u.s sounds about right yeah interesting yeah, yeah. I, I hate i don't I know wonder what restaurants they're surveying because that just sounds kind of odd yeah well who knows I, Mother's I, Day is typically a lunchtime thing with a fixed menu, often on Sunday, doesn't bring in a ton of money. Yeah, Valentine's add- Day, let me tell you, you put extra tables on the restaurant floor, you probably do about three covers full and start at about five. And you, uh, just honestly, it's a massive, massive weekend. And back to my premise, do you meet expectations, do you exceed expectations, well, or like do you to, fail like to meet expectations? I to think if I'm on the restaurant floor, we exceed no, I meant, I meant in terms of taking your partner out where you go to eat. Well, we've talked about this. You lower the bar all year, don't you, and then you exceed yeah. them. Honey, well, we're off to McDonald's tonight. Buy one, get one free. And then you just take it a Pizza Hut instead, yeah. and that's an upgrade. <laughs> not, not what I do. I imagine that's what you do, Charlie, which might be why you're eating on your own <laughs> Right, right. Why, why, why my wife is away. But that's all right. The girlfriend's free this weekend. So anyway, okay, that's it. no. <laughs> Have a good one, Charlie. You too, Take mate. Take care, mate. Cheers. David Wilson. Dropping by the studio to catch up with us to get up to speed on earnings. Did a tremendous job earlier this week, Dave, by pointing out just how much the weightings have shifted towards the tech heavyweights on indices like the S&P 500. Talk to us about it. Oh, absolutely. And if you specifically kind of break down the S&P 500, looking at growth and value, well, it turns out the tech stocks are 38% of the S&P 500 growth index right now. And, you know, you look in the value index, they're only 8%. That's a big reason why, you know, more than a decade into a bull market, you've got growth stocks leading the way as they have pretty much the whole time. And then you look at the value stocks in terms of energy, because that's been the one area in the S&P 500 out of the main industry groups that's been down in the past year. Well, energy stocks account for 7% of the S&P 500 value index and only 1% of the S&P 500 growth. So it just goes to show you, you know, how two industries can influence the overall market's performance. And certainly, you know, technology being the more powerful of the two areas, given its weighting. 
Dave, is tech a safe haven? Is that how it's perceived right now? I mean, it's not so much that as, you know, there's still an opportunity for growth there. I mean, as big as these companies are, and, you know, you think about Apple and all the rest, Microsoft and Alphabet, Google's owner, and Amazon being more than a trillion dollars in market value each, I mean, they're still growing at, you know, relatively fast rates for the most part. And so, I mean, it, you know, when you think safe haven, it's like, okay, these are the more defensive areas of the market uh, that people tend to go to. And it's, it's just, it's a case where, you know, the body in motion remains in motion, arguably. And that's the way it's been for these companies most of the time over the bull market. And uh, it just seems to be progressing from there. Just looking at these weightings on the NASDAQ 100, Apple now 11.657% of the NASDAQ 100 guy. Microsoft making up an an yeah. another 11%. You've basically got almost a quarter in two stocks on the NASDAQ 100. So what's it's interesting unreal. at the moment as well is you look at the options activity in these stocks and they've completely flipped around. I, the, the, the market has gone from kind of putting puts on, it's now buying calls aggressively. And apparently a lot of this call buying is coming through uh, from retail investors um, who are now piling in because they want some of this. Well, too. it has become a haven story. It's the low rate, low growth story. You go to where the growth is in that environment and the low rates are supporting the valuations, the multiples on some of these names. The problem that I have with a lot of these stories, though, and I've spoken to Luke Carr about this many times and with you as well, Guy, we talk about these big secular growth stories, but many of these companies in their current form have never really had a cyclical test because we've had a 10-year expansion. So think about a big secular growth story to say, payments right do you remember payments over the last few years have just really yep. exploded as people have started to move out of physical cash into credit card payments online payments etc you're going to have a cyclical test it's a secular growth story sure but when it faces a cyclical test it won't be much of a haven we'll find out at some point ain't going to be anytime soon by the looks of things though exactly so i think in that environment in a stable low growth low rate environment people are piling in dave great to catch up with you really really smart stuff as always dave wilson catches daily column the daily column yeah, chart, chart of the, of the day. day love that absolutely dave wilson great work as always up next on the program we'll bring you a range of interviews catching up with several executives across europe including the chief over at rbs caught up with the c-suite a little bit earlier on interesting conversation coming right up on bloomberg radio this is the cable This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable live across the capital on DAB Digital Radio. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio alongside Guy Johnson. I'm Jonathan Farrow. RBS in focus today. The new boss, Alison Rose, is abandoning the bank's three-century-old name and slashing its markets business as the state-controlled lender steps away from its tumultuous past. The RBS group will now be named NatWest Group PLC later this year, of course, adopting the brand, which many of you know, the sprawling retail branch network across the United Kingdom. Earlier on today, we caught up with the Royal Bank of Scotland Group PLC Chief Financial Officer, Kelly Murray. Take a listen to what she had to say. As we look at it, you know, there's 
those um, currency financing lines, they're really important. A, a lot of our corporates also use a small bit of the bits of the race business. You know that we're the biggest lender to business in the in the UK. And actually, the product lines that we have within NatWest markets are really important for us to be able to maintain that position and also for our customers to be able to do the business that they need to do. So very connected, very strategically important for us as we move forward. But we need to reshape it for the business for the future. Does reshaping mean job cuts in NatWest markets in 2020? You know, we know we always have a policy of um, talking to our staff about job cuts, but the reality is as we shrink the rates business, there'll clearly be some impacts within NatWest markets. What about um, cost cutting more broadly through the business? How's that going to look in 2020? You know, we've had a great uh, year of, of cost cutting. We've take, took 310 million out against a 300 million target. And, you know, in RBS, we've got such a strong history of that that people expect us to take 4% of our cost base out every year. And, you know, in that next year will be one of the, the same 250 million is the target for next year. I think it's just below just below the 4% number. But as your big number shrinks, the, 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 the percentages obviously get a bit smaller, but challenging, challenging targets as well as we move into into next year. And we need to continue that for a number of years, just in terms of continuing to reshape the cost base as our customers change and the way that we all do business change as well. Much more investment in the digital and technology that we're all using every day much more and more. What levers do you have to pull uh, to actually work on the net interest margin attrition? So as you look at the net interest margin, and it's the thing I know today I'll talk a lot about, the reality of, of net interest margin is, you know, it's really much to do with the yield curve. We're in such a low rate environment, and that is what's coming through in our in our in our mortgage pricing, and it's very much been driven by the mortgage pricing. So in terms of the attrition, you have to think. Well, actually, this book used to be much more valuable, earned probably one point six, one point you know percent in terms of what you were kind of trading at, and now the average of the book is one hundred and forty five basis points. So it's it's just it's repricing down to these lower levels. So the, the the NIM is important. I get a little bit frustrated that it's, people focus on the NIM so much because actually, what's really important is the return on equity we get on this business. So today, the mortgages we write earn above twenty even with the new inflation that we'll see coming through in our WAs at the end of the year they're comfortably above 15% I'm delighted in that business that they've really managed to ratchet up volume without impacting risk and the volume is now kind of replacing the lost income through margin so while the margin ed, um, reduction is a feature actually the strong strong volume growth and the strong ROE makes a great business for us to continue to be participa- participating in as we are. Okay well let's talk about those two things I mean the volume growth uh, for a start you've said today that um, you continue to see challenges uh, for income in 2020 so how how far up the risk curve are you willing to go to oh, actually no, grow I mean, income? We're, no, we're very very clear that we don't want to go up the risk curve to grow income. If I look at mortgages, they did, we did 10.4 billion new mortgages in Q4. That is a staggering number. It was 15% market share. You know, if you think that our stock share is only 10%, the fact that we're managing to sell and actually be able to process and make sure we've got the right kind of customer engagement at 15%. And it's really because of what the team has done in terms of engagement, making it so much more digitally able. So, I mean, I think for me, the, the, the mortgage piece and the risk curve, I wouldn't look at it like that. But when I do look at 2020 challenges in terms of income... Yeah, how do you look at the challenge in No, no, yeah. so if we look at 2020, it's less about mortgages. I think people often go there. It's very much about... Um, there's some regulatory changes coming. We think that they will have, have impacts on our, our numbers about 200 million a year as we look at the high cost of credit. We're clearly going to incur some losses in terms of the resizing of NatWest markets. You know, and the yield curve is still this going in this direction. And we, in our own economics, in our base case, are anticipating that we'll have another yield curve cut. Those things all make... Um, make income harder, um, particularly for banks. Oh, you're factoring in a rate cut from the Bank of England? We are, yes. Right. We, we mean, in our, in our model, it will be wrong, but we have income coming in from Q2. 
That was the Royal Bank of Scotland Chief Financial Officer Kenny Murray catching up with Bloomberg's Nera Change. Up next on the programme, the Renault CEO from New York and London. This is The Cable on Bloomberg Radio. This is The Cable with Jonathan Farrow and Guy Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening to The Cable. It is 5.48 in the City of London. Coronavirus, the main subject for markets to digest at the moment. Earlier today, Renault's acting CEO spoke to Bloomberg's Garen Gonan about the impact the spread of the virus is having on Renault and the company's efforts to reassure investors uh, with cost cuts and asset sales. This after the company posted its first annual loss in a decade. It has been a difficult year, to be honest. We suffered for many reasons. Uh, one reason being the markets. Uh, the markets have been tough on us, especially on the market uh, where we are strong, like Argentina, like Turkey, even Russia turned at the end of the year. Uh, and we also suffered for internal reason. First, in terms of governance, I guess you know, it has been a, not a very uh, a nice trip over the last uh, 12 months. Um, but also for internal reasons such as too high costs in R&D, for example, uh, not a so efficient alliance, um, too much content in our car, which we have not been able to fully price to the customer. So is it going to get worse before it gets better? Um, it's going to be tough in 2020, to be honest, uh, as we suffer for the same volatility on the market from the uh, cafe regulation in Europe. Nevertheless, even if 2020 is still going to be a top year, we are engaging in heavy reduction plan to uh, rebound. You announced today uh, 2 billion euros of cost cutting. Uh, The details are going to be provided in May. You're not excluding any plans closure, including in France, but that's a little sensitive politically, isn't it? Yes, it is. But in view of the situation in which we are, we wear dimension for a lot more volume than what we have. And what we see is that as years go by, volatility is worse on a yearly basis, if I may so. So we cannot afford to have such a capacity installed within the alliance, not only Renault. So we're reviewing that with the alliance and trying to find out what would be the best footprint worldwide for the alliance. So how many job cuts could go among your nearly uh, 50,000 employees in France? How many jobs could we see go? It's really too early to say. We know what we have to do. We have a first map, a first menu, I would say, of how to go to the two billion. But we need to work more in detail in order to refine this plan and then define what could be impacted and if and where uh, people uh, are going to be impacted. And if they are, we're going to be working hand in hand with the stakeholders in order to make it possible and and the least painful possible. Luca De Meo, the former SEAT executive who's taking over as the CEO of Renault in July, is obviously going to arrive a couple of months after this uh, plan of 2 billion euros of cost cutting. Have you actually talked to him about it before announcing it? How is he going to be associated with the plan because he's obviously going to have to implement it? Well, Luca is going to arrive on July 1st. This is the the contract that we have. So obviously we cannot involve him before he arrives. That being said, I think we will, first we will welcome Luca with a lot of pleasure because he has a great experience and he's very renowned uh, uh, car guy, as we say. But we can't wait till he arrives in view of the situation. 
And so what we're going to be working on in this plan is really the fundamental, the different bricks that needs to be tackled together with the Renault board, because obviously any of these decisions has to be taken with the Renault board. Uh, but we have to work on these bricks now. He will obviously give his final insight when he arrives, and he will obviously work on the strategy of Renault. But the bricks, we need to tackle them now. But what if he says two months later, this is not enough? Well, but then we'll do more. But, you know, two billion is already a lot. I mean, we just need to do them first. He might refine exactly what we do, because even in May, we'll have a very clear view. It doesn't mean that many things will have been fully engaged and, and with no return point. But we have to do that, and the executive committee of Renault is fully committed, again, with the support of the board, that we have to do it, we have our views, and we will implement. One big new headwind, of course, is the coronavirus in China. Um, some factories remain closed. You have to close temporarily your factory in South Korea. How is this impacting your supply chain elsewhere? Could we see some plant closures in Europe, for example? Well, that's a very good question and a big concern. Um, the coronavirus situation is very worrisome. I think we, um, we have closed, obviously, our China plant in Wuhan. I mean, like everybody else, we should be able to start to restart whenever the government allows us to do so. Uh, and we had to close our, our, our plant in Busan, in Korea, because it's the closest one with the less lead time, if I may say. Um, now, are other plants going to be impacted? Very much possible. Uh, we're reviewing exactly which part comes from China, and sometimes we don't have the visibility because it's not coming directly from our supplier, but from the supplier of the supplier of our own supplier. So we don't have the clear visibility yet, but we know some parts currently we have no news of when they're going to restart. So it's possible some European plants yeah. would have to, plan to close temporarily. Yeah. yeah, but you know we have gone through that type of, of situation with the tsunami uh, a few years back. So the good thing, if I may say so, is we know how to deal with. Mm -hmm. So we have a crisis team working on a daily basis on that. And if you have to adjust the production to, to make it more later in the year rather than now, we'll do so. We know how to do that, and our union uh, contracts enable us to do so. You don't sell so many cars in mainland China, but no. Nissan, your partner in the alliance, does. Yeah. Is this an extra pressure on Nissan and on the alliance? I think Nissan uh, mentioned that in their communication yesterday. Yes, obviously, Nissan is exposed even more than us because they sell more cars, whereas our situation is we don't sell a lot of cars. So they're very much working. At it. And to be honest, we work together with them because as the alliance purchasing organization is just one, as a supplier, a supply chain organization is very much combined, we're tackling that all together. The interim CEO of the French automaker Renault speaking to Bloomberg's Karen Conan uh, following the company posting its results a little earlier on. But the focus on what is happening, the coronavirus, uh, is certainly something that is being felt by all automakers at the moment. Um, Fiat Chrysler having to close temporary plants um, over, the, over the last few days as a result of having an audio system that it couldn't put in because that audio system uh, came from China. The S&P is currently absolutely flat, 3370. It's a long weekend in the United States. I suspect a lot of people are taking some risk off the table. Have a great weekend. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg.